Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour. As we are each weekday afternoon, taking your calls if you have questions about the Bible, about Christianity. Um, if you have problems with Christianity or the Bible, we'd be glad to talk to you about that too. Uh, the number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. Uh, announcing again today, as we uh, will be through the rest of this week and, and early next week, I am speaking in Arizona, five different places, five different towns around uh, Phoenix uh, next week and the, er, and the weekend. Uh, so Thursday, the 8th of February through the 12th of February, I'm speaking in Peoria, Scottsdale, Gilbert, Goodyear, and Maricopa, uh, five different uh, places, five different days. And uh, if you'd like to uh, join us there, if you happen to be an Arizona listener, uh, you might want to go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, to find out where those are thenarrowpath.com, under the tab that says Announcements. And by the way, one of those meetings is already full. I forget which one it is offhand, but um, there, uh, there's still room at some of them. So that's at thenarrowpath.com for, at, under Announcements to find out where and when these uh, speaking appointments are in Arizona next week and uh, into the weekend, and actually till uh, Monday after that, too. All right, we're going to go to the phones and talk to uh, Bob from Bellevue, Washington. Bob, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Well, good afternoon again, uh, Steve. My question uh, for you today has to do with 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, where um, Paul uh, b- begins by talking about not putting their following on certain men, but to focus on on Jesus Christ, and he uses the analogy of the building there, building on the foundation of Jesus, uh, which is the gospel, and he gives an analogy to certain building materials uh, stretching from gold to stubble, and and so I guess I want to ask you, uh, as I interpret verse, when we're talking about works, does that also include... Uh, the different motives that we may have on bringing others to Christ or even living out the Christian faith on that foundation? Does it include maybe our different intensities, different efforts to do that, or maybe even different costs, as he alludes to the gold, and then at the end of that, uh, the, uh, the stubble that will be burned up or evaluated by Christ uh, at the judgment? What are your thoughts on that? And then I have a follow-on question concerning that. All right. Yeah, well, the Bible makes it very clear that even a good work that's done with an evil motive is not a good work. Uh, In the Proverbs, it says uh, even uh, the sacrifices offered by a wicked man are an abomination to God. That is, and it says how much more if he does it with evil intent. So offering a sacrifice to God is a form of worship, and it's a good thing in the Old Testament, but it's bad when it's done with evil intent. And, I mean, that's, you know, Jesus indicated that the scribes and the Pharisees were full of religious works and even uh, giving alms and fasting and so forth, uh, but that their intentions were poor. In the opening part of Matthew 6, he talks about them giving their alms to be seen by men, and they'll have no reward from God. 
they are fasting to be seen by men and have no reward from God. They, they pray publicly to be seen by men and have no reward from God because of their motivation. So, uh, yeah, any, mo- any works that God evaluates, he, he evaluates from the, from the heart outward. Of course, the outward works are, are significant because in so many cases, a person's works will show what's in their heart. But it's possible to be a hypocrite. It's possible to be doing works that are technically good, but your heart is not good because you, you know that they are technically good and you're hoping to make an impression either on God or on people. And, uh, and therefore, you don't have the motivation of just pleasing God and glorifying God in your actions, which is what reduces them to something uh, less than what they appear to be in the eyes of men. Okay, I was uh, uh, one of the uh, catalysts for my asking uh, your question is, and I was, a friend and I were talking about this verse, and he said that uh, uh, referring uh, to this verse that it has to do with sins because a sin is a bad or a wicked work and it's impossible for a work to be cleansed apart from a human who performed it. I, I guess he was trying to say that there is uh, no such thing as a work as referenced in uh, the verses of uh, First Corinthians, the work just floating around out there, which is detached from a human being, that could be cleansed apart from the human being being cleansed too. And so I said, "Well, I mean, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, when we're talking about works, we're talking about human beings doing works. So, so what are we talking about uh, in terms of a?" a work floating around out there that's not attached to a human being. Who, who's doing the work if it's not a human being? Exactly. That's that, that's what he said, and I kind of agreed with that. But uh, he's well, I mean, who, he's, what, what is the alternative that anyone what, – what other position would someone take? That there are works well, out he, there that no one is committing, that no one's doing them, but they somehow exist? No, oh. no, that was not the thing. I, I probably misphrased that. He was trying to make the case that this is a – intermediate place of judgment that occurred, and I said, well, no, this is the judgment or the Bema Seat judgment that occurs in Second Corinthians 5. And he said, no, this is what uh, Catholics call purgatory, and that's where you have to go to stay there. And I said, no, because sin has already okay. been judged. Well, let so me, I, didn't, the, yeah, I didn't get into this difference of opinion. I have probably with both of you uh, about this passage because I didn't know we're going to be trying to identify where this passage is taking place. I mean, when you ask about works and whether we'll be judged by their motives and so forth, I thought we could maybe deal with that just separately from the passage, because the Bible talks a great deal about us being judged by our works. But this particular passage is in a particular context. Uh, The first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the fact that he introduces in chapter 1 that some of the people in the Corinthian church were aligning themselves out of loyalty to Paul, and some were aligning themselves in loyalty to Apollos. He also mentions some were doing so with uh, aligning themselves with Peter, but in in the rest of these opening chapters, Paul focuses on himself and Apollos, because there are some in the church who are loyal to Paul and some to Apollos, and Paul says right in chapter 1, this is unacceptable, Uh, Because, you you know, neither Paul nor Apollos died for your sins, and you weren't baptized in the name of these men. You were baptized in the name of Jesus. He died for your sins, so you're not really of Paul or Apollos. But then he's continuing to discuss this, 
And <clears throat> and you can see that he discusses that right up to chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, Now these things, brethren, meaning the things up to that point, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So chapter 3 is talking about himself and Apollos in particular. And he says in verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers, meaning servants, through whom you believed as the Lord's gift, H1. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, in verse 9, he says, uh, well, let me read on in, in verse uh, 7. So neither he who plants is anything, meaning Paul, nor he who waters, meaning Apollos, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters, meaning Paul and Apollos, and each one, uh, are, they are one. That is, they're both on the same job, under the same master. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now he's saying that Apollos and Paul both have labored on the same project. And each one, Paul and Apollos, will get his own reward for what he's done. Verse 9, 4, we, meaning Paul and Apollos, are God's fellow workers. One's planting seeds, one's watering seeds. They're, they're, Paul and Apollos are working together uh, in one project. Then he says, you, meaning the church, are God's field. Okay, well, that makes sense. Paul and Apollos, Paul planted seeds in the field. Apollos watered the seeds in the field. The church is the field. The church is the field, and Paul and Apollos are fellow workers on it. Then he says, you are God's field. Then he says, you are God's building. Now, he's just changed the metaphor. The church is the field. The church is also the building. Now, just as Paul planted the seeds in the field, he also laid the foundation of the building. And just as Apollos watered those seeds, Apollos and others come and build on the foundation that Paul, uh, Paul built. So he's seen the church as a field with, with uh, seeds planted and, and watered in it. He's also seen a, it as a building, which is parallel to that, where it's got a foundation laid, which is like planting the seeds in the field, and someone builds on the foundation, which is like someone watering the seeds. He says, verse 10, According to the grace of God which was given to me, Paul, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. We'll say, just like he planted the seeds, he said in, in verse 6, when he was talking about the church as a field, now he's talking about the church as a building, just shifted the metaphor. He says, now I laid the foundation. And another, by this he means Apollos, and, and no doubt others after Apollos, build on it. So Paul got to Corinth first. He planted the seeds. He laid the foundation of the church there before anyone else was there. He's the first Christian in town. And then others came after Paul left. Apollos and others would come and they would water the seeds or build on top of the foundation that Paul had laid. But he says, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now, the one who's building on it is a minister like Apollos or someone else who's building the church. What's being built is the church. The church is the building. The church is the field. Paul and Apollos and others are laborers in the field and on the building. He says, now, the ones who build on this foundation, that is, the ministers who come after Paul's gone, better be careful how they build the church. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is, Paul laid the foundation, which is Christ. And no one else better come to Corinth and build, start building a different church somewhere on a different foundation. There's only one foundation for the whole church, and that's Jesus. Now, if anyone, this would include Apollos or anyone else, builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's works will be manifest. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work, what sort it was. If anyone's work 
which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. Now, back when Paul was talking about the church as a field, and himself and Apollos as planters and waterers, he ended that discussion in verse 8 by saying, each one will receive the reward according to his labor, which is Paul will receive his reward for planting, Apollos will receive his reward for watering. Now that he's talking about a building, he says, uh, whoever works, uh, he'll receive a reward. So he's talking about the rewards given to ministers who are building the church, who come with their ministries to edify or build up the church. And he says, some people may want to build the church with wood, hand, stubble. What's that? That's perishable materials. That's not real Christians. The church is actually built, according to 1 Peter 2.5, of living stones built up into a spiritual house. Well, the church is made of real stones, that is, that is, people who are living stones. But some people are more like wood, hay, and stubble. That is, they're not solid, they're not, they're not stable, they're not, uh, they are perishable. They, that is to say, they won't endure the test of time as church members. But there are those who are gold, silver, and precious stones. So there's two kinds of people you can build the church with. The church is built out of people. And you can build it out of stones that are gold, silver, and precious stones, or you can build it out of perishable, uh, more or less worthless stuff, uh, which would be people who come to the church, and the church becomes bigger, but it's becoming bigger because it's swelling with people who aren't real converts. They're not real Christians. They're not going to stand up when the test comes. And he says in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Now, the one whose work is being discussed is people like Apollos or Paul or others who were building the church. That person will suffer loss if the church he builds doesn't withstand the test of fire, that is, of persecution and so forth. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So he's saying, then he says, do you not know that you, the church, are the temple of God? So he's still talking about the building there. The church is the temple. The church is the building. Paul came to Corinth. He laid the foundation. Apollos and others will build on it. And, and if they don't build it well, they will lose the results of their works. Now, this is not talking about the individual Christian uh, being judged for his individual works, although the Bible does talk about that. I mean, I'm not denying that every Christian will be judged by their works. In fact, every passage in the Bible about the individual judgment of, of people says they'll be judged by their deeds or their works or the things done in their body in the case of 2 Corinthians 5.10. And so, you know, we are judged by our works, but this is not talking about the average Christian's judgment here. There are passages that are talking about that. This isn't one of them. This is talking about the judgment of ministers being judged for how they built on God's, God's temple or how they watered and, and cared for God's field, which is the church. And he says, do you not know that in verse 16, you are the temple of God, and if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now, this is talking specifically about those who are building the church. If they do a bad job, if the temple of God, the church, that is the people, uh, the, the community of Christ, which is the living stones, if, if that church is built out of garbage, uh, well, then that garbage will be burned up when the trials come and the church will be left with few in number. Now, the man may lose most of what he's labored for, though he is perhaps a Christian and therefore he's saved. But he gets, he gets through it, losing, losing the reward he would have had. And what is that reward? Well, already in verse, uh, you know, in chapter 3, he said that the, the reward is the reward of the laborers. 
not the, not the reward of the church members themselves per se, but of those who come into town and build the church. So if a pastor is preaching stuff that's watered down, uh, he's not really preaching the gospel, he's drawn a big crowd, uh, he's got a lot of people there, but they may not be converted because he hasn't really preached the gospel to them. And, and that's what Paul's talking about. Paul is very careful to build the church with, with real converts by preaching an uncompromised gospel to them. He's not so sure that everyone who comes after him will do so. And he says if they don't, they'll have to answer to God for it because the, the, the church that they build will be tested with hardship and trials. And if, if they lose their, uh, their members, you know, as if their members backslide because they weren't really Christians or something, uh, they weren't really preached to, they weren't really, you know, they weren't really discipled, well, then, then that's the minister's fault. He'll have to answer for that. He'll lose his reward. He may not be lost, but he'll lose his reward. And that's really what Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians is talking about. Okay, we'll talk to Dot Ann from Bronx, New York. Hi, Dot Ann. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I just mm-hmm. need some clarification. Some people say that once you save and you turn away from God, that there's no chance for you to repent and be saved again. Others say that God is married to the backslider, but I can't find scripture to back that up where they say he's married to the backslider. And it all depends on when they say turn away. Uh, some people believe that once you stop going to church that you're a backslider, that you sin. Once you start uh, obeying a pastor that's not teaching the truth, they say that you're a backslider. So what is, you know, is it once saved, always saved? No, I don't believe that. But if you fall away from salvation, could you? Yeah. Well, the word backslider is not actually used in the New Testament at all. In fact, uh, the word backslide uh, is not a term that's used in the Bible for an individual at all. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we can't talk about some people as being backslidden, but the Bible doesn't use that terminology. Uh, the only way you read about backsliding in the Bible is in the Old Testament. I think it's in Jeremiah where it talks about how Israel has backslidden like a cow backsliding. Now, a cow is not morally backsliding, but backsliding means they're, they're climbing a, uh, perhaps a muddy embankment and they're sliding backward. They're losing ground. They're not moving forward. They're, they're, you know, they're slipping back. Uh, backsliding is what they're doing. Now, he says that Israel's like that. Now, individuals can be like that, although the Bible never applies that particular term to them. Christians often do, and I'm not opposed to it. I think many Christians do lose, lose their progress. They lose their they, they, they lose ground in their Christian life, and that's backsliding. Now, uh, I don't know that losing ground in itself uh, signals a loss of salvation. And I think that sometimes in our lives we do fall back one step and then hopefully go forward too. Uh, you know, our, we, we have a, our, our spirituality has its ups and downs usually, although the trajectory hopefully is uh, toward up, being more like Christ all the time. Now, talk about losing salvation. Uh, I, I think what you're talking about there is um, simply apostatizing. To apostatize is mean means that you have um, you've you've abandoned Christ. You've just given up your faith in Christ. You're no longer a follower of Christ. Now, some people say that if you ever really were a follower of Christ, you can't uh, apostatize like that. But um, but I don't, I, I don't think the Bible agrees with that. The Bible often warns people who are believers 
to be aware of that danger of falling away. And therefore, we should, uh, we should recognize that it, there is a danger if a person departs from Christ that they have, you know, they departed from salvation because salvation is only in Christ. And if you're not in him anymore, if you have not uh, remained in him, as he tells us to do, then you're no longer in the realm of salvation. Now, you asked if a person, if that happens to a person, or a person does that, because I don't think that happens. I think people do that. I don't think you just, you know, walk into the street and suddenly it just happened, you lost your salvation. Uh, That doesn't happen to you. No one can steal it from you. No one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. But you can stray. You can walk away. You, When you become a Christian, you still have a free will. And you can still choose, uh, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. And if you make that choice, then there's no reason to believe that you're still saved at that point. Now, can you come back from that? I believe you can, because the Bible speaks about people coming back from that. Uh, the passage that makes people wonder is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, where it says, uh, or, yeah, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. Okay? So, it does talk about people, you know, it's impossible to renew these people to repentance. But it's not the case that people who have fallen away uh, cannot come back. It doesn't say it's impossible for them to return to repentance. It says it's impossible to renew them. Well, for whom? Probably the readers. Because the readers are told in the previous chapter that they're immature. Uh, They should be teachers by now, but they need to be taught all over again like babes. Uh, They are not skilled in the word of righteousness. And they are not, uh, they have not matured. They're babes. And when he says it's impossible to restore these people, my suspicion may be that that it's impossible for his readers to do that unless they grow up. Now, he does tell them to grow up. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let's go on to maturity. Okay, so he, he urges them to go on to maturity. And he says, because it's impossible for you to renew. He doesn't say for you, but he says impossible to renew these people to salvation. If he's talking about them, those who are unskillful in the word, those who are immature, they're babes, and he's telling them, you've got to go into maturity. It's, you need to go into maturity because you're, you'll find it otherwise impossible to renew people who've been maybe further along in their Christian life than you have been at this point. Uh, it's going to be, you're just not qualified for it. But to suggest that no one can renew anyone uh, to, to Christ who's fallen away simply isn't agreeable with Scripture. Scripture does talk about people being renewed, coming back to Christ after they fall away. One of the places would be James chapter 5. The last verse in the book of James says, If anyone sees his brother overtaken in a, uh, or excuse me, um, if any of you departs from the faith, he says, and one converts him, let him know that he that converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and will hide a multitude of sins. So here's a brother who strays, leaves. Now, when they, when they are recovered, their soul has now been saved from death. So they apparently had abandoned Christ to the point where they were now in a state of death. But the one who goes and converts them has saved their soul from death, meaning people in that state can be converted, but perhaps not by people who are as immature and unspiritual as the writer of Hebrews says uh, that his readers are. 
So I'm, I suspect that that's what that verse is saying. But no, you can come back to Christ. If you, if you feel convicted and want to come back to Christ, he'll take you back if you fall away. But don't count on the grace of God. I should say presume on it. Don't say, well, I'll just fall away, then, then I'll come back. Because the, the decision to fall away does harden your heart. And you may find that when it's time you really want to come back, your heart is too hard, you couldn't care less. This has been the case with many people. They, they, they presume on the grace of God. They say, I'll just come back on my deathbed. But by the time they're on their deathbed, their heart is so changed, they don't care enough to even truly repent. And therefore, they end up unrepentant, though they had planned to fool God. Uh, you, but God is not mocked. Do not be mistaken. God is not mocked. Uh, what you sow is what you'll reap. And if you, you know, if you say, well, I'll fall away now and I'll come back later. Well, maybe you will, but maybe you won't. Maybe you won't be able to. It's hard to say. Let's talk to Adrian from, uh, well, let's, I, we'll talk to Adrian when we come back. Uh, we have a break coming up here. And Adrian, I don't want to put you on, then, then put you on hold. Um, we have a break at the bottom of the hour. We have another half hour coming up, so don't go away. We have calls waiting. In fact, our lines are full. And uh, at this point, every day we like to let you know that the Narrow Path is a listener-supported ministry. Uh, it's commercial-free. Uh, there are no nothing is sold in this ministry, um, but we have l- large expenses buying for uh, buying radio time. Is what it really goes to. So, if you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can write to the Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730. Temecula, California, 92593. That address, once again, is The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. You can also donate from the website. Now, everything at the website, there's lots of resources, and they're all free. You don't have to donate. You don't even have to give us your... You don't have to register. Give us your email address. We will, you'll never receive any spam from us. We don't even know you've been there. You just go and take what you want at thenarrowpath.com. It is possible, though, if you wish to donate, to do so also from the website. Uh, and, again, the website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds, so don't go away. We have another half hour coming up. If truth did exist, would it matter to you? Whom would you consult as an authority on the subject? In a 16-lecture series entitled The Authority of Scriptures, Steve Gregg not only thoroughly presents the case for the Bible's authority, but also explains how this truth is to be applied to a believer's daily walk and outlook. The Authority of Scriptures can be downloaded in MP3 format without charge from our website, thenarrowpath.com. Back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. Our lines are full, so this would not be a good time for me to give out our phone number, but uh, if we have some lines open up before we're done, I'll give you the phone number, and you can get through. Otherwise, you can just listen to those callers who are now waiting to go on the air, Which the first of which is Adrian from Auburn, Alabama. Hi, Adrian. Welcome. Hey, hey Steve. How's it going? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Uh, so, 
I have a question in regards to Isaiah 47, verses 2 through 3. I was recently talking with a buddy of mine, and he came to the conclusion. I want to look at it while I'm, so I don't, so I don't botch it, but uh, I, I believe uh, Isaiah is uh, conveying for, for God some stipulations for Babylon, and he's saying that um, if they show their leg and show their thigh, this would be equivalent to something that would be considered shameful, and I think uh, it's equated to nakedness. And my question is, can we use this as a universal standard for modesty? Where my, my friend is saying, Adrian, because it was uh, understood from this audience that showing the thigh is unacceptable, therefore women should not show their thigh or leg. Well, uh, I, I don't think this particular passage uh, relates to uh, general standards of modesty because uh, you're right. It is specifically talking about God judging Babylon and the uncovering of the thigh is specifically said to be a result of taking off the skirt. Uh, so people were wearing, people wore skirts, you know. I mean, they wore robes and they wore togas and they wore skirts and things like that. And uh, and these skirts did did cover their thighs. Uh, the the thigh would be completely uncovered uh, if the skirt was removed. But so would the buttocks and and you know the privates and so forth. So the taking the uncovering of the thigh, as near as I can tell, is a parallel to the statement, "I'll take off the skirt." Now being naked, especially if you didn't choose to be naked, if someone strips you naked, that was a great um, indignity, a great shame. So this is among the many things that God said will happen to Babylon when he judges them. Uh, they will be stripped bare and they'll be embarrassed. Now, this, of course, is something they themselves had done to their captives. When they took the Jews into captivity, they stripped them bare and, and led them away naked. And same thing with the Egyptians in Isaiah 22. It talks about, or 20, I think it's 22. It talks about how you know, when Isaiah went around with his buttocks exposed, it was to be a picture of how the uh, Egyptians will go into captivity stripped bare by the Babylonians. So essentially it's saying just as the Babylonians would strip their captives bare to humiliate them, uh, as they led them away into captivity, so this would happen to them. It's not really a teaching about the limits of modesty, uh, in, normally speaking. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that it isn't immodest for somebody's uh, thighs to be shown, but you couldn't really couldn't really prove that from this passage, in, in my opinion. I see. Okay, that cleared it up. And I have one more question. If you have time, it's in regards to a conversation I had with a former Calvinist pastor friend of mine. Who, when we were talking through total depravity, he uh, he came to the conclusion that you're unable to uh, perfect faith in Christ based off of Galatians 5, I think, verses 6, where it says faith has to work through love. So since we can't love God, it, there, there's a level of, well, there, to, have, to exercise faith, you have to have love. So he used Galatians 5, 6, and I was just wondering, could we equate those two? Or is he, is he kind of conflating faith with love? Well, the Calvinists, <coughs> excuse me, the Calvinists do believe that we can't really have faith unless God regenerates us. But Galatians 5, 6 is not talking about that. Galatians 5, 6 is telling us that when God judges us, he's going to judge us by whether we have the faith that produces works of love. Now, he's not saying you can't have faith until you have love. Uh, what sounds uh, like it's saying is that faith and love work together to produce the kinds of works that God is going to be pleased with on the day of judgment and 
how you came to have faith or how you came to have love is not in the picture, not in this passage. Uh, but, of course, if it were true, as Calvinists say, that, um, th- that you can't have faith uh, unless God makes you have faith, then God could hardly hold anyone responsible for not having faith since this, you know, you, you, I mean, n- no just God would require of people that which is beyond their capacity to, to do. I mean, what, right. what, man, what man would make his, uh, you know, three-year-old child carry a 50-pound, uh, you know, bag of, of uh, you know, grain or something and then punish the child right. because he couldn't do it? Oh, that's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, God doesn't give commands that cannot be kept uh, right. or, you know, and, and he certainly doesn't uh, hold people responsible for things that they can't do. The reason we will be judged by whether we have this faith or not is because we can. And if we don't, right. it's our fault, not God's. It's not God who gets fault, right. fault for us. Right. Okay, yeah, thanks, Steve. That, that clears it up for me. I, I, that's, that's the conclusion I came to with both of us. I just want to just uh, further carry on. All right. Well, good talk to you, brother. Thanks for your call. Uh, Jeff from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Jeff, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Yeah, good afternoon, brother. I just wanted to say uh, welcome to the Valley, and I uh, pray that the Spirit uses you in a mighty way throughout the weekend. Thank you. You bet. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye. Oh, nothing more? Okay. Well, thank you for waiting so long to say that. All right. We're going to talk to Fritz calling from Berlin, Germany. Uh, if I noticed that earlier, I would have put you up toward the front of the line, Fritz. Welcome. Good morning or good evening or whatever time it is. Um, I have a somewhat multifaceted question, which will take a little bit for me to lay out, which will require a somewhat longer answer from you. I hope you'll be patient, but it has to do, among others, with Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. Mm-hmm. But, and please don't bother dealing with Genesis 12, 3, but it's a concept of where Israel, people who are genetically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, continue to have a unique status before God, even if um, they are complete unbelievers, the mentality, this superstitious mentality that a lot of people falsely derive from Genesis 12.3. But in Jeremiah, um, he's talking about, God is talking through the prophet about restoring the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Then there's the famous passage in verses 31 through 34 where he talks about writing the law, the new covenant. He will write the law on their hearts, which Christians frequently appropriate as talking about what he does with us as well. There's a couple of passages where he says, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And we've never seen that, that all the Israelites or Jews know God. And then the famous um, one where he says, if the sun by day and the moon by night, if this order ceases and if you can measure the heavens above and the earth below, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. But he also says, then if this ceases, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done. And it seems clear that God has cast off the unbelieving offspring of Israel. But the whole question of, and I realize you are a recovering dispensationalist and a former Christian Zionist disciple of Chuck Smith, and I don't know exactly where your thinking has evolved to by this point, but it's basically the idea 
that there are unfulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament which still have to be fulfilled, and that the Jews throughout eternity, or at least throughout all earthly ages, retain a special place even after the New Covenant and the, I wouldn't call it replacement theology, I'd call it expansion theology, as in Ephesians um, 2 and 3. But I just, I'd like to hear your best case for and your best case against this teaching, whichever way you fall down on it, uh, as far as um, Jews have a special um, right or before God to, or, you know, we're to treat them differently, we're to, um, do, you, do you get the gist of my question? Oh, yeah, I fully understand the question, yeah. sure. And I'd, 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 I'd really like to hear the best argument for this idea of Christian Zionists and also the best refutation of it or the best argument against it and your best refutation of that. Okay, uh, well, let me just say I'm not a recovering dispensationalist. I'm an, a former dispensationalist. I, I left dispensationalism back in the 1970s, which is like 40-something years ago, and so obviously... Um, you know, if I haven't recovered yet, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I have any hope. Uh, no, I left dispensationalism very gradually uh, in the 70s. Uh, first, I gave up the preacher of rapture. Then I gave up the millennial, uh, you know, premillennialism. I also eventually gave up the dispensational views of Israel sometime during that decade. Um, so my views would, would be agreeable with what you call expansionist theology, or I would prefer to call it remnant theology. But both would be the same. They're, both of them are better words for what some people call replacement theology. People who say that we believe replacement theology say we have replaced Israel with the church. That's not exactly right. We believe that the true church has always been the faithful remnant of Israel in the Old Testament as well as the New. That the faithful remnant were the true Israel of God. And that the ethnic Israel, that the part of it that was not faithful was just kind of riding on the coattails of the others until the time the Messiah would come because the nation existed as the matrix through which the Messiah would come. But once the Messiah came, the nation was expected to obey him, and mostly they didn't, but some did. The faithful remnant did. We call those the disciples of Jesus, and they became the church in the New Testament. They took the name ecclesia, the Greek word for church, upon themselves because the same word was used in the Old Testament in the, in the Septuagint for Israel. Israel was called the ecclesia, or church, or congregation. So when the, the early Christians, who were made up of the faithful remnant of Israel, uh, took on the name ecclesia, or church, they were simply identifying themselves by the same word the Old Testament used to speak of Israel. They were the true Israel. Paul referred to them as the Israel of God. Now, um, Jesus did make the, the new covenant with the house of Israel, that, that is with the remnant, just as God had made the covenant uh, with a covenant meal upon Mount Sinai. In chapter 19 of Exodus, he took the 70 elders and Moses up there and they had a, a covenant meal at the establishment of the old covenant. So Jesus had a covenant meal with the representatives of the new Israel, the disciples in the upper room, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So there's no future new covenant uh, Jesus identified what he was in, inaugurating in the upper room with the new covenant, which is what Jeremiah talked about in these chapters. Uh, now, you mentioned that there has not yet been a time when they shall all know me, as it says in Jeremiah 31:34, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, 
Uh, well, it has happened to those who are in the covenant. That's the point. He says, I, this is the covenant, in verse 33, I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And those, now, the, that, that house of Israel house of Judah is the remnant of them. And, uh, and the remnant, he did put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts, as Paul said. Now, Paul did not see the, the new covenant as something that was future from his time. Uh, he said in 2 Corinthians 3, I am a minister of the new covenant. Okay, so you can't be a minister of the new covenant if there isn't a new covenant. And Hebrews chapter 8 talks about the new covenant and actually quotes this passage in Jeremiah and says now where he speaks of a new covenant, he's made the old covenant obsolete, which he's saying that the, the law is gone, the old covenant is gone, it's obsolete, and now there's a new covenant. So there's actually nothing in the New Testament that looks forward to a future new covenant. The new covenant is mentioned several times in the New Testament by Jesus um, and by Paul, and by the writer of Hebrews, uh, but always as something that happened when Jesus was here the first time. So this, this passage, according to New Testament, occurred and was fulfilled then. Now, I'm giving you the argument against the dispensational view. The dis, the best, you wanted the best argument for a dispensational view. The best argument for a dispensational view is that if you don't know how the, the prophets use language, if you don't understand what, uh, what the role of the remnant was in the Old Covenant as well as the New, uh, well, then you can just take these things differently than they were meant, and and it will sound to you like God is saying all the Jews are going to get saved. He's going to make a new covenant with all the Jews, and that they will be his people forever and ever. However, that simply is something that is done by people who I think do not know. They're not very familiar with the way the prophets talk. Uh, if I had time, I could go through all the prophets that mention this is for the remnant. This is for the remnant. This is for the remnant of Israel. And, and Paul says that, too, in, um, in Romans chapter 9, verse 27. He said, although the children of Israel uh, are as numerous as the, as the sand of the seashore, only the remnant shall be saved, he said. He's quoting Isaiah 10, but he says it in the New Covenant favorably. Only the remnant of Israel will be saved. That's Paul's doctrine. That's the biblical doctrine. Now, what about this business about the sun and the day and, and the stars and the night? Uh, if those ordinances depart from me, he says in verse 36, uh, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Well, the nation of Israel has not ceased to be a nation. Now, the, the ethnic uh, national entity was destroyed, and we have no, no promises in the Bible of it's ever been restored after it was restored uh, from the Babylonian exile. But Peter speaking to the church, which is made up of the remnant of Israel, as well as whatever Gentiles have been grafted into that olive tree with them. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 10, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, these are all terms that were used for Israel in the Old Testament. Peter's applying them to the church. And the church is a holy nation. And it is comprised of people like Peter himself, part of the remnant of Israel, part of the faithfulness, faithful of Israel. Now, there were Gentiles in Israel in the Old Testament, Ruth and Rahab being notable examples. And any Gentile could be in Israel if they would just be circumcised and keep the Passover and so forth. Uh, there was never a time when Israel in the Old Testament was strictly descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Gentiles could be in any time they wanted to. The same is true in the New Covenant. It just so happens that in the New Covenant, there are more Gentiles than Jews that have come in. But it doesn't change anything. It's just a demographic shift, but it's the, it's the covenant people. Covenant people have always been Jews and Gentiles. It's just in the Old Testament there were more Jews than Gentiles. In the New Covenant, more Gentiles than Jews, but still 
the, the people of Israel. It's still the, the faithful remnant. Now, when he says, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Now, you pointed out correctly, he, he has cut off the unbelieving Israel, but he has not cut off all the seed of Israel. He's not, he said he won't. He'll never cut off all the seed of Israel. And Paul actually picks that phrase up in Romans 11. One says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's saying, well, he hasn't cast off all the seed of Israel because I'm one of them and I'm not cast off. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm part of Israel. And he didn't cast me off. So, no, God has not cast off all the seed of Abraham. In fact, he goes on in verse 5, Romans 9, 5. Even so, then, at this present time, there's a remnant. There's that remnant again, according to the election of grace. So, the remnant is what will be saved, he said in Romans 9, 27. And, uh, and he says that remnant exists now. And, uh, and it will always exist. And because there will always be some of the ethnic Israelites who are saved in Christ, there always have been from the time Christ was here till now, and always will be, it will never be the case that God will have cast off all the seed of Abraham. Because, because not all of them ever have been cast off. And, uh, and there will never be a time where none of them exist anymore. So that's, that's my understanding of that whole subject. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, Fred. It's good talking to you. I appreciate your call. Uh, Martin from Michigan, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Good afternoon, Steve. How are you today? Good, thanks. Excellent. Um, I just wanted to start uh, with just a small uh, verse out of uh, Revelation. Um, that's my favorite book, personally. Really? Um, yes. It's, uh, it's one that I, I've spent a lot of time studying, and so I'd love to get your, I'd love to get your knowledge on it as well. Um, nope. What is the you know, Revelation, it's going into Revelation 2 when the different churches are being uh, addressed. And this uh -huh. one in particular is to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Uh -huh. uh, these things say it's the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And I had a question for you because, you know, I, I want to, you know, know more about these things. And like you were just talking about with our last caller there, um, you know, not all of the house of Abraham, you know, has broken the covenant. But there's so much of this, you know, situation that we have in front of us these days in this spiritual warfare where, you know, every single aspect of pornography and hookup culture is being run by Jews. We have every no, single I'm aspect of sure. the LGBTQ. I'm, wait, 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 wait. I'm not sure that is. Oh, no, go ahead. That's true. I don't, I'm not sure that that's true. Okay. I, I think we could find... Well, Gentiles. I can read some of the names for you if you'd like me to. Well, I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of Jewish names. But there, I bet there's a lot of Gentile names, too. I bet there's a lot of people who are Jewish and a lot of people who are not Jewish who are involved in LGBT uh, promotion and, uh, 
you know, pornography and things like that. I mean, uh, to suggest that this is simply Jews doing this would be, uh, I think, uh, impossible to document. There's thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of people promoting these things. And uh, to say every one of them is a Jew or even that the majority of them are Jews is asking, uh, asking too much. Now, it is true that it, the nation of Israel is very pro-gay. In fact, the, the very largest gay events in the world, I think, are held in Tel Aviv in, in Israel. So I'm not denying that Israel is very far from God and that they do, they do promote wickedness. But I'm just not prepared to say that, you know, you know when you get to these social ills, you're going to find the Jews alone behind them all. I think, I think Jews who have rejected Christ are involved in as many different uh, sins as Gentiles are. Um, and, and in some industries, they might, like Hollywood, obviously they, they have, uh, they're represented disproportionately. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of Jewish actors, a lot of Jewish uh, movie makers, but there's a lot who are not, too. So, I mean, I don't want to just push this off on the Jews. This is this wickedness. If, if the point you're making is that many of the Jews are not the synagogue of God, they're the synagogue of Satan, just like it says in the verse you read, um, I'll agree with you. And Jesus agreed, too. In fact, Jesus was the one who made this statement in Revelation 2.9, but he also made the statement in John 8.44, written by the same author, where he said to the Jews, you are of your father the devil, and the will of your father you want to do. So Jesus made it very clear that many Jews, the ones who opposed him, were more like the synagogue of Satan, of their father the devil. But, of course, we have to remember that when Jesus was talking to the Jews, there were a great number of Jews. The Bible speaks of the multitudes of his disciples uh, who were following him, and they were not of the synagogue of Satan. They were his followers, and therefore they were saved. So uh, the Jews and the Gentiles are pretty much in the same boat. If they have the Messiah, they're saved. If they don't have the Messiah, they're not saved. And among those who don't have the Messiah, some have been given over to great wickedness, but not all. There's many Jewish people who are not Christians, just like there's Hindus and Buddhists and even atheists who aren't Christians, who live pretty moral lives and would never be promoting pornography and that, that stuff. And so uh, to, to, to simply say, well, that's the Jews doing that, is to my mind not fair. And I, you know, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't go along with that. Sorry to say. Uh, but I appreciate Hello. you all. Yeah. Let's talk to uh, Chuck from Honolulu. Chuck, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about that tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is there something wrong with knowing good from evil? It doesn't. I don't understand what it's talking about. Yeah, well, it's not that. Well, the point is that Adam and Eve did not need to have that innate knowledge of good and evil. Because God, they had a relationship with God. God would tell them what to do and what not to do. Actually, he, he let them do everything except for one thing, and that's eat that tree. Um, and, and they wanted that too. So uh, they didn't want to be limited to having God decree what they could do and couldn't do, what's right and wrong for them. They wanted to make that up on their own. They wanted to have that autonomy to decide what the moral standards were that they wanted to live by. And that, that knowledge of good and evil is it speaks of more, I think it's more than just intellectual knowledge, but I think it's more like what the conscience has. The conscience recognizes 
at least a, an, undis, a, an uncorrupted conscience does, uh, recognizes when you've done evil. If you've done evil, you know it in your conscience. And Adam and Eve didn't know that until they had done evil, of course. There's no occasion for them to know it because they hadn't done anything wrong. And so they came to know not only good, but now evil was now part of their known experience. And this is something God did not want for them. So that's, that's what I understand to be going, going on in that case. Uh, let's see. Rick from uh, Arizona. We only got a couple minutes. Go ahead. Yes, in Matthew 11:11, where the Lord says, "Truly I tell you, among those born of women, um, there is none arisen greater than John the Baptist." I find it a little odd that he happened to use, or that the term there that's used in the English is "born of women," because Jesus was born of a woman, uh-huh. Mary, and he it was not born strictly according to nature because uh, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit. Cause miraculously causes the egg to be fertilized. I mean, we hypothesize. We don't know exactly how it happened. But so, what language was that originally written in? Uh, and um, why did he? How does that exactly work in terms of the translation? Do you well, first of all, Jesus was almost certainly speaking Aramaic. Uh, it has been preserved for us in Matthew and the other Gospels in a Greek translation from the Aramaic. We don't have the Aramaic words he used, but we do have Greek uh, translation made by some of his disciples in our Gospels. Uh, what did it mean? Uh, well, I only have like a minute now, the music's playing, but I would say this. I think what he's saying is that those who are only born of woman and nothing more, they just have a natural birth, uh, there's none better than John. But those who are in the kingdom are those who have, a, I believe, a second birth. They're born again. Uh, they are born of women, but not only born of women. They've been born of God, as as it says in uh, John chapter 1, verse, uh, I think it's verse uh, 13, if I'm not mistaken. It says they are born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, uh, but of God. So these are people who weren't simply naturally born, but they are also born again into the kingdom, which John the Baptist did not live to do. Uh, now, you said his birth wasn't natural. Well, his mother was made to be able to conceive when she was past time, but that's it's, I believe that that always happens when God causes a baby to be conceived. It just, he did, especially then. I'm out of time. You've been listening to The Narrow Path. Our website, thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us.